Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. This episode is going to be very, very exciting for me because it really bridges into a domain that has taught me a lot over the years about brain mastery, about neuroplasticity, about positive brain change, about rehabilitation, and about really how targeted therapies can improve outcomes in a way that is neuroplastic and long-lasting. So today, some of the key lessons we're going to learn is about really how speech, you know, speech therapy can really improve not only cognition, but quality of life and overall functioning when done in isolation, but also in conjunction with other therapies. So you're really going to want to listen up today and learn from a specialist that we have with us in the space. Today, our guest is a speech pathologist. She's an innovator. She's a clinician. She's somebody who's kind of always looking to better understand how to help those which she serves. She's also in a leadership role within an organization that's very much focused on the rehabilitation space. So today with us, we have renowned speech pathologist, Renee Mills, who's a program director with uh, an organization in the Denver, Colorado area. But as I understand it, actually has a lot more you know, new updates about expanding the care model really across the country. So I'll let you elaborate a little bit on that, Renee, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. It's it's a pleasure to be here. And I am speaking from Denver, Colorado. I work for Learning Services, a collage rehab partner. We uh, Learning Services has been around for approximately 30 years. And recently, within the last year, we merged with a similar company called Remed, who's primarily on the Northeast Coast and Louisiana. And uh, the merger took place over this past year. It has been a great merger because it, it represents two companies uh, who have similar values and uh, dedication and passion for caring for individuals with a brain injury. And uh, we were able to come together and we have a deeper bench of experts now and we're coast to coast. So I'm happy to, to share that with your listeners. And uh, we're a bigger family now and uh, it's, it's great to be a part of that. That's super exciting. And, you know, I look forward to digging a little bit more into that. You saw me smile big there because, you know, one of my, one of my big things is company culture and just cultural culture in general. And I loved how you were talking about visions aligning. I think that's so incredibly important in order to provide the kind of care that is needed and have the kind of relationship that's needed between you know that client and that facilitator. So really cool to hear you mention that. When typically our listeners, these are people that may have had a brain injury, may have had either, let's say a TBI or a stroke or an infection. These could be people who may have aphasia, which I'm sure you're extremely familiar with. Uh, these could be people that work in the space that maybe they run their own practice and they're not sure how to bring in speech into it in a meaningful way. These could be people who are working in hospital systems. These could be family members of an individual that may have had a brain injury. Really anything in between. You know, for people that are listening and from the lens of, you know, of speech, what is a really main message, a take-home message that you just like for people to maybe better understand a little bit 
uh, that typically isn't very well understood around this space? That's an interesting question, Mark, because that is so all-encompassing when I consider all of those different folks in your audience. I think my overall message would be rehab and constant improvement is constant. And while the research does support that within the first year, the greatest gains are seen, and even indeed up to two years, you can continue to see gains. Too many people go by that rule, Mark, and and some people, unfortunately, uh, survivors follow that so closely that when they approach that two-year anniversary, they Mm -hmm. put everything down and say, I'm done. This is the best I'm going to get. And I'm here to say, no, that's not true. That's not accurate. You still have more to do. However, those gains may not be as huge as they were the first six months, the first month, but you still have a lot of improving to do. And that's the message I would like to get out for individuals who are maybe not just fresh from their brain injury. I love that. I mean, that's that's such an important point and something that we heard so much of. You know, we were chatting before we we hit record here. And, you know, when I first started in the, in this work more in the brain injury side, I was coming from the education side. And it's funny how things go full circle, but one of the individuals that I worked with had a um a significant uh, right hemispheric brain injury at birth and he had been under the care of a speech pathologist who had been helping him from early on deploying various neuroplastic methods to help him with his learning and progress. And he had made good progress and progress that was even more superior than what the doctors obviously had expected of him. When you think about this two-year mark, I'm curious, why is that there? Why do people think, why is it 24 months post-injury that we just say, oh, that's your window for recovery. Well, the, the research has borne that out, that the, the largest, most dramatic gains are made within the first year and can continue at a fair pace up until that second year. I don't think the research is saying you can't make any progress after that. I think what they, the results indicate is that it slows down. It slows down appreciably. However, people tend to interpret that erroneously to be telling them, Look, you're as good as you're going to get. There's no point in doing anything else. That's the way it's erroneously interpreted. And I, I really enjoy reaching out to survivors who are one year in post to help them tweak what they do. And learning services in Remed together as Palaj Rehab Partners also do that. Uh, we may get a referral for someone who's 13 months out. I got one two weeks ago. And we, we don't say, oh, you're, you're 13 months out. We can't help you. You'll just have to figure something else out. No, we will help them. And there are things we can do. Likewise, if there's someone who's ne- who has been through a rehab program and maybe they're three years out and they kind of find themselves stale or stalled out or they're in a rut, there are things that we can recommend. And, and some of the very things I saw on the ABI wellness site, and I was very pleased to see we share uh, some of the same tenants. One is you need to exercise every day and it should be cardio. Because mm-hmm. cardio, regular cardio increases oxygen uptake to the brain and it facilitates neurogenesis. We know that. Eating a diet that is lower in processed foods and, and high in antioxidants, which we do here in our program, we have uh, two gardens in our program and we're adding a tree or a bush, a fruit tree or a bush every year. And our goal is within three to five years 
we won't be completely self-sustaining, but we certainly want to be able to have at least 45% of our, our produce come from on site. So right. having that fresh food is important. We don't need to eat the Cheetos and the, the Little Debbies and I, whatever you have up in Canada that may be an equivalent. We, we need to eat fresher food such as the walnuts, the blueberries. Those are wonderful. So the regular cardio, healthy diet that has omega fats, but that is not high processed, high salt, high fat. And then this is the thing that I always put out there. And some people look at me and have a little trouble wrapping their head around it. I tell them, you need to have 20 minutes of, of cognitive exercise every day. Here's where they get a little tripped up when I tell them that. I'm not meaning, Mark, that they need to do 20 minutes of the same thing they've always done. I tell them, you need to do something that's what we call a novel exercise, not novel meaning book, <laughs> but novel meaning something you've never done before. And indeed, in our own lives as, as human beings who are constantly hoping we strengthen our brains, even though we've not had a brain injury, one of the things that's good for us to do is if you do drive to work, find a different path. You know, when you're driving to work and you've been at a job for five years, what, what happens? your own autopilot. And most of the time you get there, you arrive at your parking spot and you don't recall how you got there. Or maybe you're listening to books or a wonderful podcast like this, but you're, you're, you're not actively engaging your mind. Your mind is always going to default to be, it's, it's an efficient machine and it wants to use the least amount of energy that it has to, which that's admirable in, in, a, in an efficient machine, but it's not going to help us build more connections. So I tell survivors, you need to engage in something new. Try to learn a new language. You don't have to be mm -hmm. fluent in it, but learn some new words. And there's so many resources online these days. So survivors have more ability than ever to bring the world into their, their home so that they can stimulate themselves through language activities. Coursera, if you've heard of that, Coursera is an online course where you can audit for free any class in selected universities across the world. I provide that to uh, survivors, that resource to survivors quite a bit. It could be simply as easy as I'm going to put on YouTube and I'm going to learn a, a dance step to this dance I've never known before. And most people think, well, isn't that just a physical exercise? Well, it is, which is also good for your mood and affect. But if you have to learn the steps to maybe an, an eight sequence dance and you're in your living room, you clear out the furniture, you put on this new dance song or uh, this new song that everybody's dancing to, or maybe you want to learn bachata or merengue and you've never done it. You can do it in your living room. No one's going to make fun of you, but that's a novel activity. I love it. I think you hit on so many good points there. The novelty is so important and challenging oneself above the current level that they're at. You know, one thing that, that really concerned me about this work one very specific area and relates to what you were just saying, you know, so many people that are in community in our communities and may not yet be accessing the kind of services that they need are told to take it easy, are told to go slow, are told not to work too hard. You know, when we first started our work in this space, I remember, you know, meeting with a lot of really good doctors and saying, Hey, you know, people with chronic, you know, cognitive symptom following brain injury, you know, what if we studied them and, and tried to understand if there was ways that, that we could help them to improve their own cognitive abilities? And you know what they said, many of them, and it was done with compassion. Well, I choose to believe that it was done with compassion was, you know, Mark, oh, silly Mark, you know, 
these poor people have attention issues. They have memory issues. They have anger management issues. You know, it's going to be hard for them to engage in the kind of program that's going to challenge them in, in these sorts of ways. And I remember, you know, asking them, well, how do we learn how to do anything new? It's always a hard process. It's never easy. Watch a baby learn to walk, you know, and maybe, you know, certain people, you know, following a brain injury that are chronic, maybe they won't get back to pre-injury baseline, but that's not necessarily the expectation, but can they get back some level of capacity, some level of ability that will enable them to live a higher quality of life? Well, that's what I'm here for. Right. And I know it's the same with you. And, and it was something that really led us. And I think something that you and I connect so well on is this inquiry to how can we design programs that can help people engage at a higher level so that when they're, you know, engaged in their rehabilitation, but ultimately also when they're, when they're completed their more intensive rehabilitation, they're living a higher quality life with more independence. Amen. <laughs> Amen <laughs> to that. I, I think the, whenever you're, you're wanting to improve something, whenever you're seeking to improve, if you don't stretch yourself, if you don't, and I'm speaking in, in to the survivors, if you don't stretch yourself and reach beyond your comfort zone, you never will improve. And you also bring up another point that I think is valuable, Mark, is people with long-term cognitive issues. Well, and I'll even include the ones that we see that may be three or six months out from their injury. They have a certain amount of cognitive reserve. And to get through a day, it takes them so much more than a non-brain injured individual just to complete their daily tasks. They have to draw on that cognitive reserve and it may de deplete quicker. Mm. And so some people will say, well, I, I can barely get through the day as it is. And I have such troubles, kind of what you were alluding to a moment ago. Why should I try something that's going to tire me out any even more and fatigue me? Well, my response to that is you need to build in rest breaks, appropriate rest breaks, so you can get through your day, but then you need to also reach for that next step. And oftentimes, my opinion is you need to put those harder tasks towards the morning when you're fresh, when you're not as tired. I don't recommend people try this novel exercise or novel activity, whatever it may be, at three o'clock in the afternoon. You're not just not going to be at your best. They should do it in the morning when they're up, they're fresh, and they're, they may be prone to less frustration. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point around cognitive reserve. I think that's a very, very good point. And you know, something that I'm continually fascinated about is what are the things that we can be doing to actively increase that cognitive reserve for all of us? Because I think I know for all of us, we would like to have more of that readily available to us on, on call. A any ideas, any thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to speak overall first before I speak to brain injured survivors. I think each one of us, for us as human beings every day in this current society, it's hard to maintain a good cognitive reserve. And why is that? We're constantly bombarded with information 24-7. You take us back 100 years ago, I think we didn't fatigue as quickly because we weren't constantly checking our phones. Things weren't constantly dinging, demanding our attention, whether it's your email, whether it's the latest thing on Twitter. That zaps your reserve so much more quickly. And we're in such a fast-forward society, as everybody's aware, that I think our cognitive reserves are under attack every day. So for those individuals with a brain injury, I think it's even more difficult for them because they may have difficulty deciding, well, what am I going to pay attention to and what am I not? 
What, how do I triage my day and know to focus only on the things that are important for me during that day so my cognitive reserve does not deplete so quickly? Yeah, that's great. You know, another area that I'm really interested in your thoughts on when you think about, you know, challenge and stretching, I think was the term you used. You know, one of the things I, I came across when I was an undergraduate student was some of the research, and I always get his last name wrong, but it was Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi and the whole concept of flow state, right? You know, finding that optimal experience of challenge and effort towards a focused task. And, you know, as a speech pathologist, when you think about that, what are some ideas that kind of, or, or some strategies that might be used to further help to promote that optimal engagement level uh, for an individual uh, regardless of the tasks that they might be doing. Wow, that's that's a, a very interesting question. I'll have to think on that for a minute. Oh yeah, no worries, no worries. I know I just threw that out of left field, but it, it's curious because you think, you know, in your work, I'm sure there are, there are some responders that you have that, oh my goodness, they're just, they respond at such a high level. And then there's others that seemingly are outliers where you're kind of going, hmm, I wonder why they're just not responding at that same level. And it's one of those things I'm just always curious about having the opportunity to talk with so many brilliant people in the space. I always try to pick up a new nugget of information, you know, uh, to try and learn, you know, for some, I think the aerobic exercise is key. When you talk about neurogenesis and you talk about, you know, that release of things like dopamine and serotonin, and cerebral kind of blood flow, you know, that's one of the things that we've come to learn. And, you know, one of the books that really helped to shape that perspective for us was the book Spark by Dr. John Rady, wonderful guy. We got to spend a day with him. And he was, uh, to my knowledge, one of the first kind of physicians to prescribe aerobic exercise to individuals that had attention disorders. Instead of going the more pharma route, it was, no, why don't I prescribe, you know, 30 minutes of aerobic exercise in the zone to help you with your attention disorder? And I think that was a, a pivotal thing. American society tends to want to throw pills at things for a quick fix. And when actually most often there are things that we need to do that involves intent and action on our part, and meaning we're going to have to get up off the couch and we're going to have to do something that takes us out of our comfort zone. And it's better not to default pharmacology unless we have to. And I, well, I, Having said that, I will say I do work in a neurobehavioral institute and, and pharmacology does have its place in helping to titrate someone's attention and mood and affect so we can get the most out of them. But if there's, if there's, so I'm a big believer in that and we have an excellent neuropsychiatrist who works with our team to do so. But overall, I think we need to be willing to put forth the effort. I'm speaking on behalf of everyone, not just brain injury survivors, but particularly brain injury survivors need to be willing to get out there and, and stretch and physically stretch and metaphorically stretch. And, and I did have another thought about your question of flow. I, I really do like that question. Uh, I think even Wayne Dyer, uh, the, the yeah. PhD Wayne Dyer had, had a book that talked about Kundalini, Kundalini flow. And I thought when I first heard that I'm a type A personality and I experienced very little flow in my life uh, <laughs> as a type A person. But I've learned to enjoy, and, and typically I find for the individuals I serve, the kundalini flow or the, the flow state tends to be more right 
brain-based. And I don't have research to back that up right now, but I will tell you when we engage individuals in some kind of art where they're drawing or some kind of music or some kind of movement like dance to music, we see them seemingly to experience that flow or self-report flow more often than they're, if they're engaged in a linear or logical type of activity. So it's almost like the dominant hemisphere needs to turn off to allow that flow to switch on. And to me, another component of flow is that the individual needs to not be self-conscious. So some folks for that, for them, that means we put them in a a smaller room and let them experience their activity themselves. Maybe they're overstimulated easily, or, or maybe they're just hyper aware of other folks uh, or hypersensitive. We may put them in another room so that that's not a, a mitigating factor and allow them to let that flow develop. And that flow is important, I think, Mark, because it also develops this sense of calm in the brain. And they need to experience that state more because that's a rarity for individuals with acquired brain injury. 100%. You know, one, I liked how you said that. And, you know, one of the things that in our research we found, well, the, the research team found, was that many people with, you know, chronic symptoms following TBI, based on the findings of, EEG, along with neuropsychological measures, is this state of hyperconnectivity, which behaviorally looks exactly like what you were talking about. You know, this this inability to sustain focus. You know, this this hyperactivity all the time, not being able to really sustain that focus. Ever since I heard that term, I, it really helps me to better understand the behavior that you may be seeing when you think about that hyper or over, almost over connectivity. Is just so incredibly busy up there. When you think about this space as well, then, you know, you gave us a lot to think about here, a lot of great insight. Is there only one, you only get one for today. If there's more, we'll, we'll do another recording. But, you know, if there's, if there's only one thing that you could focus on that's really quite frustrating around the world of rehabilitation and brain health that just sticks out for you, and it could be absolutely anything. Well... You've just waved the red flag in front of me, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) For me, uh, and recently this has been a hot topic, is individuals who are not able to access the rehab system soon enough. They may be receiving public assistance or, or, you know, state funding, and there is a process. And of course, with COVID, that's not been our friend in this process. So it's certainly drawn and stretched out this process. And unfortunately, I'm dealing currently with two individuals who are in acute care hospitals. Uh, There's no place for these two individuals to go. They are three and five months out from their brain injury, respectively. And they have security officers watching them because they're a bit behavioral. One was in a veil bed or posy bed. They don't have a stable activity pattern to keep them busy. And and I'm not saying this to fault those hospitals. The hospitals have been doing a, a wonderful job in the capacity that they're able to, but they realize these individuals need the next level of care, which is post-acute. And so my most frustrating issue, uh, certainly now, but it's always been a theme, is individuals who have a brain injury not being able to access the level of services they need at the time they need. We know, and studies have shown, uh, Dr. Nicholas Choe, who I'm doing some work with right now, had a research that was published a few years back that showed if an individual uh, received services early on, 
and didn't have a delay in services, they were more likely to have a positive outcome. In addition to that, we may see fewer maladaptive behaviors. So these people that are being, I don't want to say warehouse, that's probably not a fair term, but they are in the hospital. There's not a place for them to go. The public funding is not ready yet. The family can't take them back. They're beginning to develop maladaptive behaviors that make our job so much more difficult when they come to our program because we have to undo what they've learned by not you know, being in the right setting. So that is my most frustrating thing. Yeah, I get it. And again, amen to that. You know, who are the stakeholders in this? This is where I get really emotional. It's all of us. And what can we do together to help give people a chance? And that's my whole thing. Like, that's probably my biggest thing is, is just to give the opportunity to choose. So if we can just give an individual an opportunity, once they're post-acute, whether we say that's three months or six months or nine months, depending on the jurisdiction, I don't care. Give them an opportunity though, please. And that's it because we all benefit, you know, so many people, you know, when we look at the prison systems, you know, some of the statistics are suggesting, you know, at least 50% have history of brain injury. You know, what's the cost of society of that? It's high. And if there is a subset of that population, that if we can give them access to service that by informed choice, they can choose to engage in, and we can start to slowly and surely, you know, prove or they can prove to themselves and to society that they can be rehabilitated with good cognitive rehabilitation, we all win in the long term. In the short term, some people may not quite yet see that. But in the long term, as you know, doing the work that you do, and thank you for doing it, we all win by increasing access for those who want those services. And and the research is out there to support it. So we're not just making these claims. They're backed up by evidence-based research and, and practices. And, and that's the piece that's hard to, to reconcile, knowing that we're not just spouting things out, saying we, we think this is, is going to benefit people. We, in fact, know, and the science bears that out. So it feels like we're trying to push a, a big rock up a very steep incline you know, all the time. Well, and that's why, you know, part of the reason why we've done this podcast is, is this strength in numbers. You know, and there are a lot of people out there. It may seem that way when we're doing it alone. But if we can get together and get a few more hands and a few more feet behind that rock, momentum is a funny thing. And, you know, as we build that momentum together, we're quite strong. And, you know, we, we can push that rock up and, and we can get there. And, you know, I know you've seen people which you've served who have seemingly defied those odds and have gotten better gotten themselves better with your service and support. And and we've definitely seen the same thing. So, you know, that's my encouragement is that if this message is hitting home for any of you, you know, download it, share it uh, with people in your network about the work that Renee's doing, about her work at ReMed and the other, you know, affiliated companies, because it's important. And it's important to understand that people can get better you know, just because, you know, a lot of the medical professionals got to remember, give them a bit of compassion too. There are people too. And, you know, I, again, I choose to believe now I'm a fan of Brene Brown and I know you've spent time in Texas. Yes. Um, and, but I'm a big fan of Brene Brown and I choose to believe that most people, most people are doing the best with what they've got. I mean, maybe it's because I just want to be more optimistic in my life, but I actually believe that's the case. And a lot of physicians out there don't know what they don't yet know in some cases. 
So we have to give them a little bit of compassion too, but also understand that they may not necessarily know everything yet. And that's okay too. Well said. And I do love your positivity. I'm kind of known as the Pollyanna around here and I always (laughs) see the glass half full. (laughs) So I may not have sounded like that uh, in my last statement, but I always believe we can find something positive in a situation. And there's always got to be some way, there's, there's always a way to work around something and find an answer. I firmly believe that. I always have, and, and I will continue to, because I, that, that's the only way we've actually made progress uh, as a society. And it's not always a, a straight line, you know, but a, there's a lot of lessons learned along the way. You know, one of the individuals who I really, you know, appreciate is also in Texas, uh, James Durham who started TBI One Love. Do you know He's James? one of my friends. He's yeah. one of my friends, yes. Wonderful guy. And, and he often talks about, you know, there's no elevator to success, right? And I firmly believe that. As I, I've known that through my life and, you know, our clients, everyone for which we serve. I think it's important to recognize that a lot of great lessons are learned while climbing each stair. That forms a different, more complete individual able to tackle more obstacles once you're up to the top floor. And if I took the elevator, I may not have learned all the great lessons I needed to learn to equip me for life on the top floor. I love that. That's a beautiful metaphor. I love it. Yeah, no, I think it's very true. So I'm sorry, I'm taking up all your time here, but it's just great to talk to you. And I really, I appreciate your perspective in this work. You know, are there one or two books that really helped to shape you? I'm thinking about our students out there and our constant learners that are listening who are trying to find that right next book for them. Are there one or two books around the rehabilitation space or around the mindset space that have really helped to inspire you in this work? Well, if, if we're speaking towards students who are possibly in, in the cognitive therapy space, any work by Chris Hagen, any work by Prigatano, any work by uh, Mark Yilvesacker, who has since passed, those were some of the pioneers and some of the gurus that really helped me understand and understand on a bigger level than just a small micro level about traumatic brain injury, acquired brain injury. And, and Chris Hagen was one of the big influencers on Love me. It. He is the, the, the one who developed the Rancho cognitive levels, okay. not a scale, yeah. but Rancho cognitive levels. And uh, he, he's a speech language pathologist and a brilliant man. So uh, any of his works I would recommend to aspiring students or people in the cognitive space for survivors, it just varies so widely. There are so many books. I can tell you this. Uh, there are many books that are uh, on the Lash and Associates publication. You can go online I think Marilyn Lash was the founder of that, another remarkable individual whose daughter sustained a brain injury. Uh, I would recommend many books there that are geared straight specifically towards survivors. And some are caregivers, some are in the survivor role. So uh, just go and peruse that. And there's many, many great books to to look at. That's great. That's great. And, And just as a little, you know, sprinkle of hope for people out there. Is there any kind of story that of hope that, that has touched you in working with a client that you might want to share here just to help those that are maybe, you know, clinically, maybe they're working with people and they're stuck and they're going, I don't know. Or maybe they're a family member of an individual and they're going, I just don't know. Is there any stories or tidbits that you might want to share just as kind of a parting message for people that are listening? 
I love that question, Mark. Unfortunately, there are probably thousands that are up here in the, the files of my brain. So <laughs> I'll, I'll try to distill it into one thought. And this is one thought I would share with families. I would share with clinicians alike. Everybody who's fighting that fight on behalf of the survivor when you find yourself stuck, when you think in your mind the individual has plateaued, and I'm doing air quotes here, try not to use that word. I'm not a fan of that word. When you think someone's plateaued, to me, that simply means you've exhausted what you're currently doing. You need to either step away or turn things 180 degrees and look at them a different way. Whether you're a family member, a friend, a clinician, don't use the word plateau. That's the time that you need to change what you're doing and, and, and give it a different view and figure out what's the next step to get the best or the maximum out for this survivor of brain injury. I love it. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that's so true. It's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. So for people that are listening now, they want to get a hold of you. They have someone who, who is in need of speech services, or they just want to learn more about your perspective and your work. How do people get a hold of you and, and your team? Well, so if there if there's a referral to me made for our comprehensive rehab program, so learning services, collage rehab partner, or remed a collage rehab partner, we're both under that umbrella. Okay. The referral number is 1-800-847-3633. Mm-hmm. And I'll repeat it one more time. 1-800-847-3633. For individuals who want to email me, I always, as you do, Mark, I always love interacting with people, whether it's survivors, families, or other therapists, because we learn so much by interacting with others, and I can learn something from everybody I meet. So I invite you, if you have questions or want to share thoughts, uh, you can email me at rmills, that's M-I-L-L-S, rmills at learningservices.com. Great. Well. Renee, it's just been a pleasure uh, getting to know you a little bit more here during this this conversation. And I'm sure at the start of many more, I have great appreciation for for you and your work and your team's work at Learning Services and Remed. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch and see you on the next episode. I would enjoy that. Thank you so much, Mark. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the Brain Mastery Podcast brought to you by ABI Wellness. Be sure to follow us on social media channels at ABI Wellness. The statements made regarding the Bears platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the Bears platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The Bears platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice. <laughs>